0: Hello everyone, my name is Grace
1: and my name is Maeve
0: and welcome back to the systemic stage the podcast where we discuss how we can change the theatre and how the theatre can change us.
1: For this episode, we are joined by Dr. Reza Mirsajadi to discuss the intersection of critical race studies and the Middle East and how we can utilize pedagogy as a form of activism. Dr. Reza Mirsajadi uses he-them pronouns and is a scholar, theater artist, and activist, studying both critical race theory and gender and sexuality studies as they pertain to the Middle East. They are an assistant professor of theater studies at the Theater School at DePaul University. Their current work focuses on contemporary Iran and the creative work of its directors and playwrights from 1997 to the present. Dr. Mir is committed to using their research, pedagogy, and art as forms of activism. Dr. Mir is an incredibly talented and prolific artist and scholar, and we are so excited to share with you our conversation with them about their work and the reasons behind their activism. So with that, let's get into it.
0: Well, thank you, Reza, for being on our little podcast. Welcome. We are so excited to have you on. Um, I don't know really anything about your specialties, so I'm I'm super excited to learn and have a fruitful conversation about all of the things that you do and the things that you specialize in. So
2: thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to talk with both of you about it and I'm so glad that there's interest in it because for a very long time, uh i had to fight for people to understand why it's important. Mm. Uh, so thank you so much for reaching out f- to me and uh for this offer. I can't wait to talk to you.
0: Absolutely. How, how when did that? um when did you find that shift where people um started becoming as that recent like with the with the um Black Lives Matter movement arising or is you know when when did you um stop fighting for that sort of attention?
2: Uh uh, it's been I mean in in some ways it's still an ongoing process really when I was in undergrad I uh, eventually when I transitioned to being a theater major, I decided that for my uh, my senior thesis I wanted to write about Iranian theater, which is something that none of my professors had uh, I had never even uh, not once in a theater class had the Middle East come up as a topic. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, not in my theater and... classes either. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I've exactly. I've had a few, but so... <laughs> I know that they're rare. And my professors would always mention, like, remember this because it's important that you know this.
2: Yeah, exactly. So there was that sort of sentiment. And this was back in 2010. Mm -hmm. Um, So I decided that I was going to try and do what I can to research and see what Iranian theater there is. Because as someone who is Iranian, who's half Iranian, I really deeply identify with that part of my culture. Um, And it was interesting to me how when I would go and visit Iran, I would see that theater is happening. But in the broader world, people didn't seem to recognize its existence. Um, So I started uh, doing my research in undergrad and I continued it in grad school. Um, And there was a very small cohort of us, of graduate students and a few people who are on faculty uh, in U.S. and North American universities doing this sort of work. Mm. Um, But it wasn't until... um, I would say for me until we grouped together and started um, the Middle Eastern Theater Focus Group through the Association for Theater and Higher Education, which was two years ago, that it was more widely recognized that there's a lot of work happening, that people should be doing research on it, and that professors should be teaching this work, that theater companies should be producing this work. Um, it's still sometimes a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I assume that in most theater history classes and most dramatic literature classes, the Middle East is still sort of excluded. Um, but we are slowly changing the narrative.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah, I got my, I, I just received my BFA in acting and Mave is much more of a scholar than I am. But I, I took a, a couple classes and it's, well, now in retrospect, I'm realizing how heteronormative, how white, how you know, Christian, our, our, you know, (laughs) my, my education was in terms of theater history. Um, and I mean, that's the point of our podcast is to, um, give light and to give voice to different facets of the theater that are often, um, seemingly swept under the rug so
1: and that's why we went to the same undergrad she was bfa acting and i was ba drum and theater studies and mm-hmm. i got a little bit more of a worldly knowledge <laughs> more well-rounded of, <laughs> education more well-rounded it. education <laughs> i have to say that's a <laughs> shout out to the drum and theater studies department at elon but anyways. yeah
2: how big is that department
1: oh the, uh, my graduating class, I believe there were five of us.
2: Swole. <laughs> wow! Wow, yeah. that is tiny. Five yes, very well-rounded, very wonderful scholars. passionate yes.
1: students, <laughs> very passionate professors, <laughs> of course. Um, that's
2: awesome. Yeah,
1: so uh, we wanted to start with, of course, you're a theater artist, scholar, and activist. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your work? I know that that's a very difficult, large question to distill into a couple sentences, but please try. <laughs>
2: I'll do my best best. Uh, I think of the work that I do in terms of my artistry so as a director uh, dramaturg um, musical director um, as well as the work that I produce in my scholarship and the things that I teach in my classes are all really deeply integrated um, and they all follow an ethos of of social justice and trying to push for more equity in the u.s and also global theater scene Mm -hmm. um yeah so i see this all very uh deeply integrated um and the plays that i research that are happening on stages in iran or in egypt or in any number of middle eastern countries are also plays that i teach in my class um scholarship that i write like i'm um I have a paper that I co-authored that is coming out in the new Methuen Drama book of trans plays. Um,
0: Oh, that's wonderful! So my
2: research on trans theater, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, (laughs) glad (laughs) there's an anthology on trans theater. So cool. So like this, um, my my research and my scholarship on trans theater and the relationships that I built with trans and GNC artists, uh, theater artists, has evolved into a class at the theater school right now called Beyond the Binary, in which we're looking at trans theater, and we're studying it really deeply in conversation with trans theory. Um, so yeah, all of these are really deeply integrated. Um, and it uh, <laughs> I, I can't see separating any part of this sort of identity because then I'd be missing out on this sort of broader intersectional work that I could be doing.
1: Well, I also think that's part of the definition of intersectionality is the necessity of pulling from a bunch of different areas in order to get a grasp on what you're trying to say.
2: Right, exactly. The more intersectional and also interdisciplinary mm-hmm. you can be, the more We are able to understand the real complexities and nuances of the world we live in because there are always so many factors impacting everything, Um, all the theater that is being created, everything that we learn about, and the way that we engage in our daily lives.
0: Mm, That's wonderful. (laughs) I mean... Well, it's it's also just like so poignant because, I mean, theater is a reflection of humanity and it would be a disservice to not acknowledge the, you know, the many different layers of um, intersectionality and interdisciplinary um, studies in terms of your sexuality, your race, your ethnicity, your identity. And um, it's so important to be a well-rounded artist in those ways in order to fully have a grasp on um, all of those things, and to further our world into a more accepting and equitable space. <laughs> <Exactly. You know? laughs> I agree 100%. Um, so your work is focused on the intersection of gender and sexuality studies, as I heard you know, a, a sort of glimpse of that, um, and as well in the Middle East, as well as you know critical race theory on top of that peppered in there, what made you, I mean this, this these are so many broad topics. like what made you decide um, like to dive into this and to study um, all of these areas and um, you know what what sort of tools has studying these intersections with the Middle East given you to become a more prominent activist and artist and? well good sure. person.
2: <laughs> I uh, sort of just with my interest in the intersection of uh, Ir- Iran and the Middle East and theater, it came from a place of trying to more deeply understand my identity. Um, this isn't something that I quite understood back when I was an undergrad, but as I continued creating art and doing research and producing scholarship and doing activist work, I come. I came to find that I couldn't see any reflections of myself Mm. in theater that was being created. Um, I couldn't see reflections of a lot of people who are deeply complex and intersectional in theater that is created. Um, And then when I would go and I would read, for instance, Middle Eastern studies, um, there would always be a sort of very deeply political lens there um, and the lens that Equate,s for instance, the Middle East as a as a space where it is impossible to exist as a as a queer person, as a trans person, as a person um, who is you know female identified and female empowered, uh, mm-hmm. as an ethnic and minoritarian and religious other. Uh, so I wanted to combat all of these in my scholarship. And one of the things that is the hardest in the context of the U.S. and writing this and doing this research and teaching this in the U.S. is advocating for why we should consider the Middle East and Middle Eastern studies in conversation with critical race studies. Yeah, because critical race studies. Yeah. Critical race studies. People are um, really familiar with talking about it in the context of black diaspora um, Black diasporic identity in the context of um, other sort of uh, minoritarian identities in the US. But the Middle East and Middle Eastern Ethnicities uh, are the language that we have is always imperfect. Yeah. Have always been excluded from categories of race, right? Right. Um, even on the census, right? We're still mm-hmm. regularly excluded. Uh, so our lived experiences of racial otherness aren't being considered. And when we note that race itself is a social construct created by um, sort of post-Renaissance Enlightenment pseudoscientists, Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: we can more deeply understand that if race is a social construct, then its existence is in the lived realities of people who have to exist within these spaces. So that's sort of what I'm trying to do with the Middle East, right? I'm Mm -hmm. trying to uh, assert that, yes, people in the Middle East lived lives as racial others in the U.S., despite Uh, what you see historically as what race is or what biological definitions of race are. In the aftermath of 9-11, but even long before that, existing as a Muslim person, existing as a Middle Eastern person in the U.S. has always made me personally and a lot of my peers, uh, uh, we have felt... um, Persecuted isn't probably (laughs) the ideal word, but both in... Persecuted politically and systemically, for sure. Yeah, but also, yeah, on an individual basis mm-hmm. um, and on a sort of everyday bias basis, we have felt as if we don't belong.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I was reminded, and I, I, I did know this, but I was reminded in your in your article of how um, there on you were talking about in the census. Such a
1: good article. You I have, loved that uh, yeah,
0: article. it's wonderful. I everyone
1: everyone should read no it. I had no idea. <laughs> um, I had no idea that that was a problem. That like Middle Eastern identity was not available on the on the census. That's horrible.
0: yeah, and you have to tick white, and that just there's it, it seems it seems so wrong. You know, there's such a there's such a privilege and a mm-hmm. and a categorical, you know. Um, hierarchy with within the society to to tick white when there's when the the reality is what you were saying there's that that sort of political persecution um, post 911 of people from the Middle East and also I want to uh, touch back on you were saying earlier about the how um, you, you know the the Middle East in in terms of theater, is um, you don't see yourself within the theater, and there isn't a lot of um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like representation. Representation. Yeah, <laughs> there isn't a lot of representation, if any. You know, and I'm I'm thinking back, like, okay, what I've read, Disgraced, um, and, which I know you have feelings about, <laughs> and uh, I've also, when I was in London, I saw the Jungle. Um, do you know that play? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I've heard amazing things about it. Oh
0: my gosh, I wept. Yeah, it's, it's about, um, the jungle refugee camp in France? France. Um, and I had no idea about that until I saw that play. But, you know, and as, as an avid theater goer, those are the only two examples that I can think in my head. Um, and that's sad, you know? And I feel it's like it can't be that, that, that shouldn't be the case. Um, because, um you know, people from the Middle East are just as human and have just as um wonderful and and dramatically interesting stories as any one of us. And why shouldn't their stories be told on stage? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh so there has been this push over the last two decades uh with theater companies uh in the US to create and support more art and dramatic performances, theater, etc., cetera, from um, Middle Eastern communities and Middle Eastern American communities. So there's Silk Road Rising, who I'm working with now in Chicago. Um, there's Golden Thread Productions in uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, there are some newer groups as well, like the North Theater and New York City. Uh, the Lark has a large, um, and New York City also has a large uh, Middle Eastern initiative. Um, but these are still, um, these aren't like lort theater companies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They are um, hindered by the amount of financial and uh, institutional support that they get. Sure. Um, so a lot of the Middle Eastern American. And more Middle Eastern diasporic playwrights have gotten their works produced there, right? If anywhere, yeah. Um, but still, they serve very insular communities in Chicago, in San Francisco, in um, New York, etc. So we're what we're trying to do now. And there's been a lot of organizing in the past few years with the Middle Eastern and North African Theater Makers Alliance, with a variety of different organizations that have popped up over the last several years. There's been a move to almost unionize to gather together artists from the Mina world, um, and to push for greater and more authentic representation on stages outside of the ones that are particularly devoted to you know to Mina plays. Mm-hmm. Disgrace this Played everywhere. Disgraced was off Broadway and then on Broadway and it won the Pulitzer. Uh, and people <laughs> see this as like, now check, check like mark. There, you got there's your, your play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The same way with I actually just taught I'm My Own Wife mm. in the trans theater class. In the same way, uh, people were like, check mark, we have trans theater now, it exists. Uh, but the way in which it's constructed and its representation of trans identity is really deeply problematic in a similar way as Disgraced. Um, so, the push now is for trying to understand who has control of the narrative, uh, trying to take back control of the narrative uh, and put it in the hands of the people who experience this marginality mm. um, and and to diversify the narrative, right? To understand that to be Middle Eastern, to be trans, to be... Um, any sort of marginalized identity is not a monolithic thing. Right, there are, are a multiplicity of st- stories and all of these sort of minoritarian categories. So the more diverse we can be, the better that the broader theater-going public can understand. Well, world.
1: I know you've discussed in some of your essays that I have thoroughly enjoyed reading um, <clears throat> about how, like, oftentimes it's like, especially in disgrace, the the narrative is like. White savior complex, um, and I think that that is very, very interesting. So, can you like kind of explain a little bit for our listeners about what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, um, so it's it's interesting, and this is something that I note because I'm also I teach and I am an activist, like supporter of uh, African American and Black diasporic theater. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of the discourse that other marginalized communities, um, have created, uh, that they have, uh, used to advocate for themselves has actually come from work that has been done in the African-American theater community for the past, let's say 120, 130 years, right? Um, so the white savior complex is something that uh, um, that black critical theorists and activists and media analysts have noted for a very long time. Um, but you can see it in all sorts of marginalized narratives, including the Middle East, including, uh, for instance, I'm My Own Wife, where Doug sort of, uh, no, no shade, but sort of presents himself as a white savior in some ways in his engagement with Charlotte. Um, but there is a way in which having in which it having a uh, the white savior in these terms makes audiences who immediately would feel uncomfortable seeing someone on stage who is not familiar to them and who they can't discern whose internal life they can't um read um that having a white savior narrator or character or hero within these stories um uh gives them a feeling of safety
0: Mm, right yeah
2: gives gives a lot of audiences and wide audiences um uh a feeling that the critiques that are happening in the film or the play or the novel or whatever aren't really about you, the audience, right? It's about people who are not like you. It's about
1: them, yeah. It's about the
2: other people, Mm -hmm,
0: right?
2: The villains, yeah. (laughs) The villains. (laughs) And it's so easy right now for us to say that, like to say, like, Trump supporters and that sort of uh, the right-wing nationalists and white supremacists are uh, the are the sort of villains in these narratives. Um, But I think what a lot of um, minoritarian artists have been doing recently is saying that that there's actually much more complexity there, that oppression is felt more broadly and in different ways, in more diverse ways. You can see that in the Middle East, right? when and I wrote about this in one of my articles, but the ways in which Trump was talking about the Middle East in twenty sixteen mm. were not that different from the ways in which Hillary Clinton was talking about the Middle East. Yeah. They're just couched in different terms. Right. Mm-hmm. They're all funneled through this militaristic lens.
0: Yeah, and it's dangerous because that, you know, um influences then our implicit biases on, you know, how we feel about um different different folks because of when you know because of what we hear on the news because of the um plays that are produced and because of the the media that we consume um and you know at the same time it's it's difficult because there is a um you know a systemic and historical structure that is it's pretty seemingly impenetrable and you were talking about the um trying to change the narrative and that's I, it's, such, it's such a big task you know and it, it's it like oh, I'm thinking about like how do you do that um and it's is like a, you know it's monumental um
2: but also it's particularly so important oh I'm sorry I no I,
0: that's all I was gonna say is that it's important yeah you
2: go <laughs> yeah I'm just saying it's it's particularly difficult when Uh, In order to get produced. Right. Mm. You have to cater to people who have money, which are institutions and institutions, capitalist institutions that have benefited and profited off of white supremacy. Yeah. Right. Uh, So to make money
1: off of the wealthy audiences who often happen to be upper middle class white people.
2: Right. So how do you navigate those tensions mm-hmm. of capitalism and white fragility when you're also trying to more authentically advocate for yourself and your own representation? Um, so these are the things that we're trying to navigate uh, as minoritarian artists, artists broadly, whether it's racially, gendered, uh, sexual, uh, minoritarian, uh, disabled and differently abled, neurodiverse. Um, this is something that a lot of different groups of people are dealing with um in similar ways and not always as interconnected and um allied as we should be. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it, you know you bring up a a great point in that y- that you know I think and in the theater we um sort of put on and we talk about this a lot in this on this podcast if we put on this sort of uh, Mask that is like we are the liberal open minded people who are bringing art and diversity to the world, and it's like that's you know we have to recognize that there is white supremacy in all of our systems and all of our structures, and the first step is to acknowledge it and not to deny the fact that we are um you know perpetrating this system of oppression um and that we need to make changes in order to move forward and to in include you know be more inclusive be more equitable be um you know less oppressive and it makes me so frustrated you know how how our industry sort of um does that and when it's just not the reality at all yeah
2: <laughs> i yeah i agree i think you put it really well and i also think that now thankfully we are in a moment when lots of different institutions and theater organizations, um, and university systems, et cetera, are realizing that this is something that needs to change right now.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So <laughs> I am very curious because I am a scholar. I am, uh, obtaining my master's right now. Um, Ooh, in theater. thank you. Um, and so because I'm, uh, 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 you know scholarly nerd um i really am curious nice. <laughs> about your <laughs> about your specific focus on contemporary iran and the theater from and its theater from 1997 to the present um so can you tell me a little bit about why you chose like that specific subject area why contemporary iran why 1990, 1997 and like what you have discovered in the process
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I noticed in theater history textbooks uh, is that if the Middle East is included at all, right, or even in scholarship, if the Middle East uh, is included, and this is up until the last maybe six or seven years, um, it is solely through the lens of um, really... Um, orientalized narratives about theater, uh, very exoticized narratives um, and portraying the Middle East as distinctly other. So I'm thinking specifically of, of something like Tazieh, which is an Iranian performance tradition or more broadly a sort of Shia Muslim performance tradition that reenacts uh, like a sort of passion uh, or a passion performance reenacts the martyrdom of uh, one of the, of, of Imam Hussein at the Battle of Karbala. And this happened in um, the uh, um, 1200 years ago. So it's a reenactment that happens every year. And it started maybe 300 years ago in Iran, and it still happens today. Um, but it's a very distinct kind of theater um, and a very simplistic in a lot of ways. And I don't mean to, to denigrate it, but it is very simplistic in a lot of ways. Um, and the ways in which people have written about it have, see, have uh, in the West uh, has sounded a lot like, oh, look how um, primitive, uh, look at the primitive theater that still is happening in Iran and in the Middle East. Uh, so my my attempts in graduate school were to push against that narrative to say that, yes, there's a lot of very modern theater and modern drama that is happening on Iranian stages in particular, Um and I, the focus on Iran is simply because I speak Farsi and I don't speak Arabic uh, or understand Arabic to nearly the same extent as I understand Farsi. Um, so that sort of pigeonholes me when we're in the Middle East because <laughs> it's sure. the only country that is
0: deeply, <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> deeply <laughs> Farsi. Um, so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to show the complexity of the work that is happening on Iranian stages, um, the political narratives Um, of Iranian artists uh, to sort of humanize Iran um, and show how, yes, the Iranian artistic landscape is very similar, if not even more forward-thinking than a lot of the theatrical landscapes that we see in the U.S. and the European countries. So that's where this started. Um, In the process of doing this, I've also realized that the way in which I'm thinking about theater and that I've constructed theater in my head is problematic, right? Um, That, (laughs) so this is going to be the addendum to (laughs) all of this when I write my book. Um, But that theater, as we know now, theater with a capital T, theater as dramatic literature exists as it does because of colonialism and uh, imperial forces from the European Renaissance um, and the intersection of these, and especially playwrights, and the forcing of texts by playwrights like um, Shakespeare and Moliere and uh, Racine, etc., on colonial others hmm. on the subaltern has created in these other countries um, a modern theatrical style that looks a lot like Shakespeare or Moliere or like the sort of European theatrical style. But actually if we go deeply into these histories of uh, global um, performance, there is theater that existed for a very long time. It just wasn't always written down. It wasn't logo centric. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, here's a text that we can study in schools. Um, and it's much more diverse than the, um, in style than the theater that we think of today as modern theater, for instance, i just I'm teaching this soon um this book, uh which I really appreciate the Ibn Daniel, uh, Daniel trilogy from medieval Cairo from 12th century Cairo. Um, Interesting. (laughs) Right. It's these, it's these puppet plays written by this poet, uh, who also did a bunch of puppet theater, but he was challenged by one of his contemporaries in, um, right. The 1200s in, in Cairo, he was challenged by one of his contemporaries, uh, to create, uh, piece of puppet theater that could be like literary and dramatic and like elevated. (laughs) Uh, So here's this (laughs) amazing trilogy of plays that's really, really queer and (laughs) grotesque and vulgar and (laughs) sexual and, um, (laughs) and no one would have imagined that this exists because it's, uh, people haven't done that sort of excavatory work to bring it into our history books Mm -hmm. uh, and to teach it on a, on a university level to produce it, etc. That's fascinating.
1: That awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, you were so uh, this. This is like a perfect segue because you were talking about um, these sort of Shakespearean um, looking um, um, narratives that you see in in um, in the Middle East and in, the, in their theater and your essay reading Hamlet. Is it is it Tehran? Tehran.
1: Yeah. Tehran. Tehran. yeah. Um,
0: reading Hamlet in Tehran, neoliberalism and the politics of Poli- um, politicizing discusses how um, Shakespeare is currently the most frequently produced playwright in Iran, um, and even famous Shakespearean scholar Stephen Greenblatt, who very problematically discussed the prevalence of Shakespeare in Iran. Um, <laughs> you know, can you tell us a bit about this trend, you know, elaborate more on that and the significance of this prevalence in terms of understanding the state of contemporary Iranian theater and its relation to critical race studies? That's
2: a big question. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll try and uh, explain it as s- succinctly as I can. Sure, and we'll also so. link
1: the the uh, article so people can just Great. read it. If yeah. <laughs>
2: <things>. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, it's actually not. It's it's more broad than iran shakespeare's popularity mm. right um well, m.i.t yeah. <laughs> has a well of course, yeah of course, right? um but i'm also thinking in the middle east sure so there are, there are books that are written um margaret lithin wrote a really wonderful book um on arab hamlets specifically looking in egypt um in the ways in which theater artists from think the 50s or 60s to the modern day have used specifically this this story of Hamlet and this this prince character to speak to their social and political realities. Um, We see a lot of similarities in that in Iran, but it's also um, important to acknowledge that Hamlet and Shakespeare and Adaptation more broadly doesn't only function in a political way, Mm. right? I can speak more um, to Iran than I can to the rest of the Middle East. But in Iran, because Shakespeare is so popular, and we have to acknowledge, of course, that Shakespeare is popular because people are told that Shakespeare should be popular. Shakespeare is taught in in grade school, so Iranians read translations, Farsi translations of Shakespeare, uh, generally um, a large majority of them before they go to college. So they have a similar familiarity with the Bard as uh, if to a slightly smaller extent uh, than we do in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or in Anglo countries, um, in English-speaking countries. So uh, Shakespeare sort of held up as the pinnacle for what theater can be and what theater can be produced. So you see a lot of Iranian directors um, staging Shakespeare because they believe that there is no greater challenge than to stage Shakespeare. Um, They uh, stage Shakespeare because it's really deeply legible because a lot of Iranians know of Shakespeare so you are staging something that people are familiar with. Um, they're staging Shakespeare because global audiences will see that this is Shakespeare and there's value in that. There's value in appealing to global audiences where there's more money there in, in Iranian theater. Um, so it's a really complicated uh, um, topic.
0: Yeah, but it sounds like it. when you look yeah. at these
2: productions, right? When you look at these productions, how Shakespeare is it? Because right. in Iran, if you were to stage Hamlet, in its, like, completeness, people would walk out after the first hour and a half. I've seen a lot (laughs) of productions in Iran that don't last longer than um, almost, I don't think a single one I saw was longer than two hours. And you can't really do Shakespeare in less than two hours. So, like, 60 minutes to 90 minutes, that's, like, (laughs) the sweet spot for Iranian audiences. So you have to really adapt and, like, pull things out, and you have to uh, really put shakespeare into this very specific kind of box for mm. to work in iranian stages um so it's less the um the sort of the things that uh scholars like greenblatt elevate as why shakespeare is great and why people love shakespeare the fact that shakespeare is political the fact that Shakespeare's language is so complicated. The fact that Shakespeare's characters do this and do that. Uh, the fact that Shakespeare is super um, human oriented and universal doesn't really work um, when you apply it to looking at contemporary Iran, where there are a million different ways in which Shakespeare is used and reused, um, <clears throat> yeah. abused sometimes. Um, but it's because you know because people pay to see it. Because it's popular and because there's something in the story that they connect to, uh, the theater artists and a lot of audiences, if not the text itself.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, hey, so sure. I find this super interesting um, you are the founder and chair of the Middle Eastern Theater Focus Group at the Association for Theater and Higher Education. That's so, this so is a cool. Wonderful, <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful <laughs> online community for theater artists, scholars, and educators invested in work from and about the greater Middle East and its diasporas. So can you share with us why you decided to create this group, um, a bit about how difficult it was to start this group, and um, the work that has stemmed from its creation?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So in recent years, uh, there's been a greater push at conferences and in the scholarship that is being produced and shared at these conferences, et cetera, symposia, uh, for there to be more representation of the Middle East. So at, um, one of the large conferences that we have in our field, the American society for theater research, um, and I think this is in 2016. So I was, um, so for two years in a row, we had uh, two different um, working groups, they call it, that were focused on the Middle East. Um, and in the second year of doing this, I was talking to, I was heading one of them and it was specifically looking at um, protest and revolution within the context of Middle Eastern theater. And I talked with, uh, my my good friend, um, Samer Al Saber, at who is now at Stanford and who is leading the other uh, working group on the Middle East, and I was like, so should we like have conversations about what we are doing and what these two different groups in the same conference are doing? Should we talk about how we can collaborate so that in future years we don't have two competing organizations trying to do this. Um, And out of that came this idea that the institution of AFA, the association association for theater Higher education, which specifically has focus groups uh, similar to like affinity groups, the focus groups for um, specialized uh, research and networking, et cetera, in various minoritarian groups, um, out of that came the idea that we should advocate uh, and push to create um, a Middle Eastern theater focus group so that we can connect artists and scholars and teachers um, who are doing this work separately in their like own little, in, in their rooms, in their houses, in their universities, but not actually talking to one another about it. Uh, out of that, I, I spoke with Harvey Young, who was the president of ATHA at the time, and um, Harvey was like, okay, well, this is a long process. If you're into it, you have to get 250 signatures, which is about a quarter of the 1,000 people who are go to the conference every year uh you have to write up these uh this essentially like a constitution for your group uh you have to have elections you have to do this that oh my goodness uh, appeal to the board it's like a sorority (laughs) yes it was complicated so i went luckily that year Atha, the conference um was in boston and i was boston based so i uh said, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to get my like, my sheet uh, <clears throat> uh, for signatures. And I'm just going to sit there in the lobby for four days and get as many people, Have people as sign, it. <laughs> to sign it. Exactly. And there are a lot of people who are like, yes, this is exciting. Uh, we need this. We need this representation. Uh, at that conference, I also met friends of mine who um, became instrumental in creating this organization like Sarah Fahmi, who right now is she's an uh, Egyptian theater scholar who is now at UC Boulder like uh, Megan Hammerstall who is now working at BC like Marjan Mousavi uh, who is just went from University of Toronto to Maryland like Rana Sfandiari who's at University of Kansas Bart Pitchford who's at Montevallo now so uh, we created people from everywhere people yeah yeah right and from who do a bunch of different work on different areas of the middle east a lot of different backgrounds in terms of our ethnicities and our genders uh etc and we as a core group of people who are really passionate about creating this organization understanding how little representation there has been uh we um basically we we hit the ground running we we uh did all the things, checked all the boxes that they asked us to. uh, And it took a full, full year, a little over a year for us to finally get approval. Um, That's amazing. We got approved. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so, I'm so happy it happened last year. We had our first, real conference uh representation although everything was online Mm -hmm. uh so hopefully this year in austin uh austin texas we'll be able to have our first in-person meeting and we actually have plans moving forward to create um a so are you familiar with the latinx theater commons i am Yes. Great. Right. Yeah. So we love the Latinx Theater Commons. We're obsessed with it. I'm <laughs> personally obsessed with it. Um and a lot of my mentors and my close peers are really deeply involved in the Latinx Theater Commons. Um, so we met with um Olga um uh uh Olga Sanchez Sulfite, who is now at Middlebury, I believe, uh who's um Central in creating the Latinx Theater Commons about what it would look like if we were to transform into something like that. Uh, so, if we were to be in partnership with HowlRound or other sort of online organizations, uh, and we can uh, connect with Manatma and Manasa Midwest and the handful of other artistic focused and theater focused. Um, Middle Eastern groups that there are, so that we can have a broader collective of scholars and artists and activists and teachers, et cetera, uh, that has an even larger platform yeah. um, to to share our work with the with the U.S. and the global, you know, the the um, the global audience of people interested in theater. So that's that's the road ahead, and we'll see how it goes. That's wonderful.
0: You said in your email that you wouldn't consider yourself a prominent activist, (laughs) but (laughs) this is—I mean—that's what I (laughs) I know. I mean, that's what activism is. It's like you know creating something out of nothing and if you see a disparity if you see something that's needed you get up and you and you you create it yourself and you create your own content and you form these organizations and you get people involved and then all of a sudden you have an organization that um uh-huh. you know you meet in Austin, Texas and you talk you about conference. these things a I conference, a conference. <laughs> and i just think that's amazing and think that's how that's how we start like that's how we make change and i'm really Like, that's awesome. I really commend you for that. That's incredible.
2: Thank you.
0: (laughs)
1: It means a lot. Yes. (laughs) So speaking (laughs) of activism, um, I know that you have said that you complete most of your activism through your pedagogy. So um, how do you do do that? How do you weave your activism into your teaching? Um, And do you have any advice for others interested in teaching about how to prioritize activism through pedagogy?
2: That's a a really great question. And it's also a question that is hard Mm -hmm. to navigate because there is, uh, on a university system, we we don't want to indoctrinate people, right? We want to allow people and students to come to their own decisions about the world and to come to understand the world. Um, So the way that I essentially do it is, um, my work as an activist is encouraging students to read and to read broadly. And the only way in which I can make that happen is by assigning things for classes, (laughs) assigning texts that are um, fundamental to understanding race and colonialism and gender and sexuality, to understand how all of this intersects with theater and with lived experiences um, to make sure that for instance, I'm teaching a history of dramatic literature right now, uh, a class right now that focuses from sort of early European Renaissance to modernism and to make sure that the texts that we prioritize are as diverse in multiple ways as they can be. Um, so this, out of this, students don't necessarily become activists, but they often understand more deeply the um, inequalities in the world around them and how fear mm-hmm. is and is often not in conversation with those. I mean, look at uh, the two of you and how you started this podcast, right? Uh, which I, I imagine came out of a very similar um, energy of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of, Activist style pedagogy um, that motivated uh, your undergrad careers. Am I correct?
0: Yeah, yes. for sure. Yeah. I, absolutely. I mean, well, you go, Maeve. Mayf- was- no. <laughs> okay.
1: I was just going to say that um, a lot of my friends, myself included, you know, we are my professors were really wonderful in how, like not indoctrinating us, as you said, but giving us readings and giving us the opportunity to do more research and. All all of my classmates all found they read one singular text and it like launched them into what they're interested in and what they're continuing to pursue. I read one singular Irish play my sophomore year and now (laughs) I am in an Irish university getting my master's in theater. It's like that's the kind of thing that is I think what how teaching can be so impactful and so powerful
2: and so inspiring. That's so cool.
0: Yeah. Well, I was I was going to say. It's amazing what education can do. And now that I'm out of education, I'm finally understanding the importance of it. <laughs> um, and, and you know, it, I mean, I grew up in a very... White education, even up, even including college. I've, I grew up in that sort of privileged, affluent, um, environment of, um, upper middle class, upper class white people. And even, and, but, you know, it wasn't even until like my, my senior year of college where I realized that like, oh, you know, my education can really shape me to, um, have different perspectives of the world around me. And, um, you know, that can propel me forward in, um, educating others about, um, you know, the different injustices that we have, and and ha- you know, allowing people to, you know, and that that's what started this podcast is making space for people to tell their stories because I'm realizing all of you know, as as open minded and as liberal as I as I consider myself to be, we're still so. Um, you know, misguided in our privilege and we, um, you know, I wanted to create a space where people um, are allowed and safe to tell their stories and to um, elaborate on the different things that they experience and their passions. So, you know, it's true of of how um, education can really um, influence you and shape what you do and what you're passionate about. So...
1: Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Um, as you explained, that you mostly just leave it to the readings that you assign and have <laughs> your students explore for themselves, which I think is so ideal. Um, do you have any suggestions for us and for our readers who are interested in your area of study?
2: Sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, we already know. Our- <laughs>
1: yeah, I know it's like it's a big, like, yeah, can- <laughs> big question, but like like plays, productions, TV shows, film theories like scholar scholarship anything you got if you if you feel passionately about it you want to share with the world <laughs> share with us
2: absolutely uh so one of my favorite texts is um this it's by uh dr lumba i have it somewhere on my desk it's called <laughs> shakespeare race and colonialism uh and it talks about the intersection of here it is um talks about the intersection of post-colonial studies and critical race studies and Shakespeare and how this sort of, how Shakespeare has created um, a, a, has, has shaped um, colonial others and racial others um, to see themselves in Shakespeare's eyes as opposed to often um, as they're more authentic and um, more personally, like, um, self-loving, self-compassionate selves. Mm. Um, So there's Shakespeare, Race, and Colonialism. Um, I love all of the works and writings of um, Susan Laurie Parks, and I try in every class I assign for them to read New Black Math, Mm -hmm which I think is so deeply powerful, that article.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the Brother-Sister Plays is uh, my favorite trilogy uh, and some of my favorite plays, um, but they get really deeply at the intersectionality of our existence. And I'm looking right now at my, my, so, some of my bookshelves, but like The Hungry Woman by Sri Moraga. Uh, is something that I'm deeply obsessed with. (laughs) Um, And honestly, so much of the work that is put out, the scholarship, and the writing that is put out on HowlRound, I think is what we need to be reading right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, scholars have a um, complicated relationship with outlets like HowlRound or American Theater Magazine or others that aren't necessarily peer-reviewed, quote unquote, in the same way as um, academic journals. But often these online and more public facing outlets are the areas where the people who are doing the most necessary activist work have, um, have their writing published and where it can influence the most people.
1: We love HowlRound. That's how we found you. Right. Oh, I mean, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, also, higher education is a part of the institutionalized, racist, systematic problem of our society. So there, that is also a wonderful reason why you should look at other forums aside from just taking the word of scholars.
2: Right, right. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage uh, everybody – uh, who listens to your podcast to read broadly and to read people who are outside of uh, what they're familiar with?
1: Mm.
0: Wonderful, thank well, you. Thank you. Just to wrap up, I mean, we are, we, we mentioned this. Uh, we sort of touched on it in the beginning of, uh, of the episode. Um, what um, any projects we can look forward to seeing you from in the future and what what can we expect um, in terms of your current work? (laughs)
2: Uh, Sure. Well, I'm at uh, the theater school at DePaul. So uh, I just got to Chicago and I'm trying to find my place within the Chicago theater community and what that will look like post-pandemic. Who knows? Uh, Mm. But I've already been working with Silk Road Rising um, here and we have um, a production in the works that is going to come out in December 2021, hopefully, um, which I'm co-directing, Adapt. Did by Corey Pond, which looks at the nativity play and the story of Jesus mm. told through the lens of Quranic texts and uh, Islamic texts. So, yeah, so looking at Isa um, and also um, Maryam or like the mother, uh, the virgin mother, Mary, who is the only woman specifically named in the Quran. Uh, she has an entire chapter devoted to her in the Quran. Um, so looking at Mary and Jesus through the lens of the Quran um, and sort of a play with Music and it's going to be really fun. Mm. I'm working on some other projects that look at um, that look at anti-blackness in the Middle Eastern and uh, Muslim communities in the U.S. In terms of scholarship, I have um, an article that is coming out in an edited collection that is about theater history and um, the double the double bind of inclusive pedagogy within theater history and how we can make theater history classes more equitable. I have another article coming out and this sounds like <laughs> so much all of a sudden, but I have another article coming you out. suddenly realize uh, how much you're on your plate. <laughs> yeah. On this Iranian, uh, director, this puppet director, um, female director by the name of Zahra Sabri who just does this amazing work with clay and puppetry. So she makes the puppets over the course or her actors make the puppets out of clay over the course of the production and like destroy them and mold new puppets. Mm. It's brilliant. It's this play called count one. So that hopefully is coming out over the course of the next year and activist work. Um, we are trying, as I said, to make uh, the middle Eastern theater focus group, um, bigger broader uh have a larger presence and be more allied with other um theater related companies um so hopefully within the next year we'll have a solid platform through which we can more easily and effectively do our activist work
1: that's wonderful so (laughs) (laughs) so many cool projects thank
2: you
0: yeah we look forward to you know seeing how they flourish i'm excited you. excited for you. we will
1: definitely link uh, a bunch of things everything we've mentioned in this episode um we like to provide as much as we can for our listeners um That's and awesome. for ourselves honestly <laughs>
2: <laughs> i can't wait to hear more of, of the interviews that come out of systemic stage i think the work you're doing is really great and really necessary so Thank you for all of that. Thank you. That
0: means the world to us. (laughs) You have no idea. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on our podcast. Absolutely. And taking your time to, uh, you know, have a a very meaningful conversation with a bunch of strangers. This is really (laughs) amazing. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Systemic Stage. We hope you were as inspired by our conversation with Dr. Mirsa Jadi as we were. If you felt this inspiration with us, or even if you felt differently please feel free to let us know. We always aspire to foster productive conversation. We are always eager to hear your insights and perspectives on the topics we discuss with our guests. Be sure to follow us on social media, including our Instagram at Systemic Stage Pod, our Twitter at Systemic Stage, and our Facebook page. We will link some more information on the intersection of critical race studies and the Middle East, as well as all of the resources mentioned during this episode, on our website, thesystemicstage.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Keep an eye out for our next one. Until then, Stay safe, wear your mask, and we'll catch you next time right here on the systemic stage.